The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, everyone. I'm Peyton Sarton, host of the Note to Self podcast. Note to Self is a space to embrace your unique qualities, get grounded, and ultimately have honest conversation. No topic is off limits. I began doing social media seven years ago, and since then, I've started a clothing line and this podcast. Note to Self is a place where people from every stage of life can come for advice, new perspectives, and to feel a little less alone. Whether I'm recording by myself or bringing along a friend, we will explore topics ranging from relationships and mental wellness to social media and entrepreneurship. Tune in to Note to Self every week for the sisterly advice you didn't know you needed and raw conversations you've always wanted. Yo, 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 and welcome back to Creep Sand Crimes Podcast. I'm Taylor. I'm Morgan. Happy Thursday. Happy episode 161, bitches. 160. Getting a lot of bitches from me. Yeah. But I appreciate Let's it. Crack a lack. <laughs> Let's crack a lack. Let's crack a lack. Let us know. Guys, every mic check we do, Morgan like picks a new like white man phrase to talk <laughs> about, to say in it. Like last week, it was like turd bombers or some shit. Whatever I called you guys last week, that was my mic On check. Patreon, though. On Patreon. Oh, that was on Patreon. It was on Patreon. Today, it was what's crack a lackin'? What's literally and what's crack a lackin'? We had to do like four mic checks because we couldn't get the sound right. And every time we play it back, it's Morgan. What's crack a lackin'? What's crack a lackin'? What's crack a lackin'? What's crack a lackin'? I gotta think of a good one for next up. Oh, goodness. That'll be fine. I'll yeah. just carry over my mic checks into the intro now. Episode 161. So, what comes after this? 161 has, oh, you have a surprise coming on Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this comes out next, or or next Thursday, Mm -hmm. which is the Thursday before Halloween. Halloween's on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. following Tuesday, meaning I wonder when your trick or treats are. Are they doing them Tuesday night or will they do them Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday? Tuesday night? Yeah. <clears throat> I can't wait to see all the pictures. Oh, I can't wait. And if you're not wearing our merch, then you're fired. Yeah. Parents, wear the merch. Put your kids in the merch. They're going to be cold in yeah. the costume. You know, they're going to have to have a sweatshirt and let us warm up the babies. Those little Disney princesses, they're going to need yep. a little Let's Get Creepy hoodie to throw on after. And all the Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers and shit. Just love Halloween. Do they still do Power Rangers and stuff like that? That um, shit was... Power no, Rangers, I think, is still in. They brought it back. I know Ninja Turtles are. Yeah, because they brought it back too. Yeah, aren't I Power think those two are owned by the same? People, I think right? Power Rangers is now like whenever we watched it, it was like just like maybe four or five Rangers, and mm-hmm. now there's like fifteen. There was like a yellow, a pink, a blue, it's a lot, a red. But I think I'm actually thinking of a different show that's really similar to Power Rangers that's out now. I know what you're talking about. It's like all I'm seeing is the girl in pink and the boy in blue and the guy in red. Oh, like with real people though. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that is still Power Rangers. Oh, okay. I yeah. think they did because I don't remember really anything about pa- Power Rangers. Power now that I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I don't think it was. It was Marshall's cup of tea, but I don't really remember it being mine. I remember it was this guy that I had a crush on in preschool's oh. favorite thing. So all of a sudden it was yours, at least for that month. Yeah. Because he was the hot topic. And his last name was Taylor. Oh, Taylor Taylor. And I was like, are you going Taylor Taylor? I literally always thought, literally. Literally? I always would throw their last, any of my boyfriends, yeah. I would throw their last names in on my name just to see how it sounded. Well, here's me at four years old being like, that sounds like a great name. I think we've had this conversation before. Before, but do you remember phone signatures? Oh, yeah. Like it would be like Logan's girl. Uh-huh. So I had one and I put his name backwards. His name was Bailey. Hey, Bailey. Hey, Bailey. And he actually just married one of my friends. Oh, hey. Good friends. Funny how the world works. Oh, yeah. Anyway, oh, this is when you just went to. Yeah. yeah. And then. Yeah. So anyway, I had his name backwards as my signature and it was Yaleb. It's like Y-A-L-I-E-B. And it was like iconic. I was like the first one to put something backwards. I thought it was so like. 
cryptic fucking cryptid. yeah cryptic cryptic yeah it was so funny i was like that's hilarious no no i can't remember what any of mine i changed it like i changed a fucking yeah. logo or you'd go and change your friend's signature and be like morgan loves you yeah or when you would like you would do your friend's voicemail I never did that, but I did always change Ugh. your contacts to be like, hey, 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 Morgan. Dude, have I ever? I think my probably. best friend in the whole wide world. Oh, I love her so, hey, so, hey, so, hey, so hey, much. Hey, 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 so you'd be the top of the contacts. Yeah, and then you would do like the equal sign with the capital D. Because before that. you could search for a contact, you had to hit that down arrow on that yeah, phone. Yeah, you did. 40,000 times yeah. to get to the M's or the T's. I would have to do A's or like um, ice. Ice. Ice in case of emergency. Ah! That no. was so fucking ridiculous. Guys, we're really proud of ourselves today. Yeah. So we rewarded ourselves with a sweet treat. We got a little treaty. We were ready to cancel and reschedule this recording. But we were good girls. But we were good goals today. And literally, it was like, oh, here we go again. Literally? Literally, they say it way too much. I know we do. I'm sorry. I don't know how, because we didn't really say it for the long, like we would say it every now and again. And then there was someone around us that was saying it like as a joke. And then- Overnight, it was probably like a TikTok trend or something. Yeah, it was something dumb. Like but I don't it know just happens. How, how we, we got here. get rid of it? I know, and It'll I still say it a lot. Yeah, I say it in my everyday life. Yeah, we'll text it. Yeah, we do text it. And exactly, oh, exactly, guys. Here's another thing too. Exactly, exactly. We're also like getting to this place where we're like, okay, yeah, I can say it. What women? <gasps> She said it. I've been practicing. You've been practicing? In the car. In like, women. 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 Oh, my God. You know what I watched? Wait, wait finish your first topic that I, don't I remember interrupted you with. I don't remember. Uh, what was I saying? Literally. Oh, we're getting to exactly. a place. So, obviously, what I'm going off of with this is the shift. Every so many months. And if you're it's like. It's called maturity. Maturity. If you're listening to our podcast, like, all the way through, you probably won't catch it because you. I'm, what I mean is, like, you've been listening it for a really long time. Like, you probably are hearing it with us. Mm -hmm. So it's not such a big thing. But I feel like if I were to go and I were to pick two episodes, one from the beginning, one from the end of each season that we've done yeah. and, like, listen to our communication patterns and, like, the way that we're talking, it's going to be vastly different in every single one. So crazy. It's so weird to hear. Because I was listening back to one of our season one episodes the other day and or actually it was season two because we I was watching it on YouTube and the way we like the way we said things were really young like the way that we were saying stuff was super young it's because we're women now we're women <laughs> women 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 yeah we're women now so now we have to you know it, it's just so weird to hear and like process how much it changes but where I was going with this is one of the things that has also changed is like the way that we do research and it hasn't changed in a really long time. I don't know. I feel like oh, you, you're saying it's changed now. No, like right now. Oh, I feel like I'm in a different state of research than I was a year ago. Oh, of course. But like not as like vastly different as it went from like, I think it was season half a season two on like that was a big shift and the way that we were doing yeah. our research. And like, of course it changes like every now and again a little bit, but like, I feel like it hasn't had a 
big shift in a really long time. Like we're still presenting the cases the same. Maybe we just like found our groove with it. So I'm curious to see like what you guys think about it. But again, yeah, I'd like to know. You're not even like good judges of it because you're listening to it every week. So you're experiencing it where it's like, right, you know, well, I bet some of you would have noticed. Well, definitely noticed whenever it was like their research sucks right now. They are slacking. Their research is hurting. I'm like, hurting. really? I feel like the research is the best that it's ever fucking been up until you started talking shit again about it. Now I'm stressed the whole time. Now I'm stressed. Now I'm like the whole time. I'm like, this isn't right. This doesn't sound right. And I end up scrapping a million notes. This is why I think mine is improving. It's because before I would struggle to get enough information to even meet 10 pages mm. of notes. Yeah. And now that's like, like I'd be struggling yeah. to fill that. Like I was always around, you know, like a five or a six. I really was mm-hmm. always around five or always. six. I probably haven't recorded an, an episode under eight full pages, nine pages in a long time. In a long time. But you know what that is more so than anything? Because I could have two sources and get to 20 pages if I really wanted to. Yeah. I think it's more of like the, your storytelling is changing so much and you're putting that in your into the script script because we like research the case right so you're watching stuff about it you're reading countless fucking articles you're finding books you're finding more sources and then as we're doing that we're kind of like writing down a timeline of what happens and then once that timeline is broken down and there's like all these sections where we have like to fill in the pieces. Yeah, you just like fill in the pieces and you restructure it in a way that is the storytelling version that not right. just like the facts of it. And then once you do that, you add the like fluff. Not the, the Crips and Crimes fluff. Yeah, I, I don't you even... You add the F-bombs. You yeah. Add the, you add the like... the literallys, the exactties, and the And movements. like I even prompt in my notes, like if I'm... I mean, not my notes, in my script, like mm-hmm. if I'm going down and there's like something that I'm thinking about when I'm typing, typing it, it, I'll end up typing like a little thing like, hey, you were thinking about this here if you want to have a conversation about it. But it's never like a non-organic conversation that happens. Right. It's just kind of like a prompt to bring up something to have a conversation about. Sometimes I do that. If so, yeah. something comes across my mind, I'll like put a little hint. Yeah. Talk about. I probably have about two per episode. Yeah. I wouldn't. I don't have. Yeah. That. Where but, it's like. But we talk comment. crazy shit during my. Yeah. Stuff. There's so, like most of the time we end up skipping the prompt that I've even given because we've talked too much. Yeah. Because <laughs> we don't know. going to be us. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, I guess we'll fucking get into it. Yeah. All right. If you're driving, throw that shit on cruise control. If you got a glass, pour that shit up. And let's get creepy. Okay, Morgan, what do you have for us today? Okay, today I'm going to be talking about a man named Elmer McCurdy, otherwise known as the bandit who wouldn't give up. Okay. All right. So I'm throwing a little curveball here. Yeah. You'll see why eventually. But Elmer was born in Washington, Maine on January 1st, 1880. His mother, Sadie, was only 17 years old at the time of his birth, and she had him out of wedlock, which we know is a very big deal in the 1880s. Right. While we aren't really sure about who Elmer's father was, it is speculated that it was Sadie's cousin, Charles Smith. Oh. Since Sadie was not married, Elmer was an illegitimate child, right? And possibly the product of incest. Exactly. 
Therefore, her brother, Sadie's brother, George, so Elmer's uncle, and his wife, Helen, George and Helen, adopted him so that Sadie could kind of save face with the town of Washington. When Elmer was 10, his adoptive father, George, had died of tuberculosis, and his wife, Helen, really just needed to get the hell out of Dodge for a little bit. Fair. So she and Elmer, who he thought was his mother, along with Elmer's birth mother, Sadie, packed up and moved to Bangor, Maine. Honestly, kind of iconic for sister-in-law to be like, yo, I gotta come go. With us. You wanna come? Yeah, you wanna come? Yeah. I can't go. do this alone. Yeah. Come on, he's 10 years old. And it was around this time while living with Helen and Sadie that who he thought was his aunt tells him that the truth is she is in fact his birth mother. So this is when he finds out, around the age of 10. Oh. Immediately, the questions started pouring in from Elmer about who his father was. But when Sadie didn't have an answer for him, he was extremely resentful, kind of shut down, was not happy with that response. I mean, fairy's 10. Yeah. It's a lot to process. His teenage years were filled with binge drinking, which was something that Elmer would end up carrying through the rest of his life. At some point in his teenage years, he moved back home to live with his grandfather, so Sadie and George's dad, where he became an apprentice plumber. Okay. And he did pretty well in life at this point. He was on an upward hill. He was financially stable. He wasn't drinking as much. Like, he was living a good, healthy life, enjoying the time that he was spending with his grandfather. But there was an economic downfall in 1898, which is when Elmer had lost his job as an apprentice plumber. And if things couldn't get any worse, his mother, Sadie, birth mother, Sadie, died shortly after this from a ruptured ulcer, followed by the death of his grandfather from something called Bright's disease just a month after Sadie died. Damn. Bright's disease is basically an old term for kidney disease. Wow. It was trauma after trauma, and Elmer decided that he, too, needed to get the hell out of Dodge and leave the state of Maine. So he began to kind of float around the East Coast, and this is when he worked as a lead miner and, again, once again, a plumber. But he was drinking heavily during this, and he really wasn't able to hold a job for a long period of time. Eventually, he would settle in Kansas, where he worked once again as a plumber. In 1905, he was arrested in Lola, Kansas, for public intoxication, which quickly Prompted another move out of there. <laughs> yeah. Hell out of Dodge. Get the hell out of Dodge. To Webb City, Missouri. In 1907, he ended up joining the United States Army and he was assigned to Fort Leavenworth or Leavenworth. And this is where he was trained as a machine gun operator and trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition purposes. Okay. Three years later, he was honorably discharged. The reason being unknown. Oh. But I have a speculation about that because 10 days after his discharge, he ended up making his way to St. Joseph, Kansas, where he met up with one of his army buddies when they were arrested for possessing burglary paraphernalia. <laughs> this paraphernalia were things like chisels, hacksaws, funnels for nitroglycerin, gunpowder and money sacks. So I'm sure he <laughs> bro had an agenda in the army and got honorably discharged yeah. because of his obsession with nitroglycerin. I mean, clearly. I mean, who the fuck is walking around? Morgan, if I ever opened up your trunk and I saw these things, would I ask you what's going on? Probably I'd be like, y'all good? Everything good? In the, I mean, in like, the where are we going? Would probably be the first thing I'm saying because who are we about to go rob right. or murder? And he was, for being honorably discharged, he was probably watched. Yeah. Because you don't just get arrested for paraphernalia. Yeah, no. Someone definitely saw that he was moving shit around. And yeah, he was shit. being watched. Yeah. During their arraignment, they had convinced the judge that, no, these aren't for burglary purposes. Instead, they're really just tools that we needed to work on because we're building, we're inventing a brand new foot-operated machine gun. Oh, and he was found not guilty. They bought it. 
So they were like these two inventors, these two start off inventors. They need nitroglyceride for their foot gun. And they need investors. And that's it. Yeah. Worldwide. Exactly. Prestige. Let's give him a patent right now. Right now. Right here in the courthouse. Elmer decided to incorporate his training with nitroglycerin into his robberies. Because like I said, he was the bandit who wouldn't stop. Sorry, that's not what he was called. He was the bandit who wouldn't give up. Okay, fair. Not not stop. Well, yeah, he also didn't stop. <laughs> That's true. This often caused a lot of problems because while he was obsessed with nitroglycerin, he always failed to correctly determine the right amount to use oh. in his little robberies, which caused a lot of issues. By March 1911, he had again relocated, this time to Lenapa, I think it's how you say it, Lenapa, Oklahoma. That same month, he and three other men decided to rob the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train number 104 after he heard that one of the cars contained a safe in it that had $4,000 cash. Oh, wow. They successfully stopped the train. They located the safe, followed by him putting his nitroglycerin on the safe store to open it. But he miscalculated and he used way too fucking much. Oh, shit. So the safe was destroyed in the blast as well as the majority of the money. I Burnt mean- it. Burnt it to a crisp. <laughs> Let that blew that shit up, burn it to a crisp. That's literally me and you trying to, go to do, be robbers. Yeah, we would fuck it up. Yeah, we'd be like, what was that measurement again? Yeah. And we would definitely have it wrong. Out of the 4,000, they were able to, like, uh, I guess, melt and fuse coins that were, like, on the safe's frame. And they ended up getting about, like, 450 in silver coins from that. Fair enough. In silver. So, yeah, fair enough, I guess. On September of, or not, in on in September of 1911, Elmer and two other men attempted to rob the Citizens Bank in Chattaqua, Kansas. And after spending about two hours breaking through the bank wall with a hammer, he packed his nitroglycerin right around the door of the bank's outer vault. <laughs> The blast blew the vault door through the bank, destroying the entire interior, but did not damage anything inside the vault. So oh, this wow. is a win. He then tried to blow the safe door open with the nitroglycerin, but it didn't ignite. So he failed. Well, here's my thing. Why are we chiseling through a wall when we have this explosive thing that we can... Because <laughs> he doesn't know how to fucking use like, it. Bro, we're going to bust through a million different things. Let's... Stop wasting our time with this fucking chisel. Right. Let's just... And get into he's, it. He's not confident in his nitroglycerin. Yeah, clearly. He's, he just he's, wants to use it... He's lacking the confidence. When there. there's very much valuable things on the other side. Right. So they had a lookout man that was outside of the bank, and he got scared. He ran off. So Elmer and his buddies only were able to steal about $150 in coins, and these coins weren't even in the safe. They were in a tray outside of the safe. Like, just, like, <laughs> chilling outside. They were no. about to make their way in the safe, but I think the bankers probably set them aside and... And then walked away, which if you were in charge of my money and you're just throwing my shit outside the safe to yeah, get back no. to later when you have time, I'd be fucking I'm going to be living. Later that night, the they all hopped onto a train, which took them to the Kansas border. And they all split up here. And Elmer made his way to the ranch of a friend whose name was Charlie Rivard. And this was near Bartlesville, Oklahoma. He ended up hiding out here at this ranch for a good couple of weeks. And some say it was like a, like a hay shed, which I'm assuming is like a small barn. Yeah. And he sat there and he drank and he drank and he drank. All he was doing was drinking there. Just a random hate It was shed. his friends. Oh, it was his friends. Yeah, it was his friends, Charles. His friends aren't going to let him come inside. No, his friend's like, yeah, buddy, you can stay here, but you're in the barn. You're in the hay shed. The hay shed. And I'm going to bring you some moonshine to, you know, keep you occupied. But right. my wife can't know you're here. His final robbery was on October 4th, 1911 in Ocasa, Oklahoma. He and two buddies had planned to rob a Katy train because they heard that it contained the royalty payment that was due to the Osagi Nation, and it was nearly 400 
thousand dollars in cash. Holy which props to the city of Oklahoma or the state of Oklahoma yeah. in 1911 for giving this native nation four hundred thousand dollars in royalty payments. That's millions of dollars. Yes, today. millions of dollars. So they wanted to rob this train and they wanted to steal all of that money, $400,000 in cash. But when they boarded the train, they boarded the wrong train. Oh, God. It was a passenger train and they were only able to steal about $46 from the clerk that had worked the train, two <laughs> bottles of whiskey, a revolver, a coat, and then the train conductor's watch. Wow, they really just gave up. Yeah, and there was actually a newspaper article that was written up about this attempt where they were like totally mocking them and called it one of the smallest in the history history of train robberies. <laughs> and I don't think that sat well with Elmer. He was pretty butthurt about yeah. this robbery, about the article. So he went back to his buddy's ranch, sat in the hay shed, and he drank the two bottles of whiskey that he stole. Around this time, unknown when, before this train robbery, Elmer had contracted TB, tuberculosis, as well had a mild case of pneumonia and trichinosis, I think it is. And he stayed up that night. He's fucking pissed, right? He's sick. He's pissed. He didn't get his $400,000. And he sat up that night smashing that alcohol before he went to sleep. What he didn't know was that he was implicated for the robbery. They knew who he was. They knew where he was. And there was a $2,000 bounty on his head. Oh, shit. So on October 7th, there was three deputies, Bob and Stringer Fenton, I believe they're brothers, and Dick Wallace. And they were able to track his whereabouts by using bloodhounds. The Pretty impressive. Oh, wow. Pretty fucking impressive. I was like, they didn't just ask fucking Charlie? Yeah, Charlie, where's he at? More he's like not, Charlie's wife. I think Charlie's probably in there drinking with him. I yeah. think Charlie used him as an escape a little bit. No, 100%. Charlie hey, I gotta go out to the hay shed. <laughs> Get out there. You gotta yeah. Charlie's wife prisoner? walks out there. She sees it. She's like, I'm calling the police. They can act like they found him with a bloodhound so I don't get in trouble later. Yeah. But get this fucking mooch out, out of here. Out of my barn. Yeah. All he does is drink and leave me empty bottles to clean up. Yeah. He's not picking up after himself. Get him the fuck out. And then my husband won't come inside. Right. Exactly. He's <laughs> out there drinking also. So oh. he's right here. Come get him. Come get this motherfucker. So they surrounded the hay barn at night while he and his buddies were up there drinking, him and Charlie, and they waited there until the sun rose. And that morning, there was a shootout. And October 8th, 1911, Elmer McCurdy was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest. And this is an article from that day from the Daily Examiner. And it's a quote from the sheriff, Bob Fenton. And he said, quote, it began just about seven o'clock. We were standing around waiting for him to come out when the first shot was fired at me. It missed me. And he then turned his attention to my brother, Stringer Fenton. He shot three times at Stringer. And when my brother got undercover, he turned his attention to Dick Wallace. He kept shooting at all of us for about an hour. We fired back every time we could. We do not know who killed him. On the trail, we found one of the jugs of whiskey, which was taken from the train. It was about empty. He was pretty drunk when he rode up to the ranch that night. So bro left his own trail for the bloodhounds. Yeah. He was pissed about his the smallest robbery in the history of train robberies. He's pissed about that. He's drinking up to the back to the hay shed. Yeah. And he leaves a bottle and that's how he got busted by the bloodhounds. That's crazy. And I know at this point you're all wondering why I just told you a true crime case. Yeah. Well, it's about to get fucked up. So okay. let's get creepy. No one thought much about Elmer, the bandit, since his death in 1911 until about 60 years later. Have you ever heard this? Kate? No. Okay. It was 1976 when the camera crew for the television show, The Six Million Dollar Man, went to set up shop for a scene that they were about to film at a local funhouse. 
The funhouse in question was at the New Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California, and the funhouse was called Laugh in the Dark, and Laugh was spelled L-A-F-F, Laugh in the Dark. The production crew was filming for the episode called Carnival of Spies, and during the shot, the director wasn't really vibing with all the wax mannequins and their placement. Fair. So he, or a worker unknown, went to move one of the mannequins, and this mannequin in particular was hanging from a gallows. It was hanging. Okay. Okay, very disturbing. I'm really scared. When he went to shift it, he heard a pop to only look down and see that the mannequin's arm was now off of his body and in his hand. Looking at the arm, observing it, he noticed something extremely odd about this mannequin and that it was not made of wax. And they knew this because there was human bone and muscle tissue visible in a fucking funhouse in California. Shut the fuck up. Police were immediately called and this mummified wax corpse mannequin was taken to the Los Angeles coroner's office. On December 9th, Dr. Joseph Choi did an autopsy and determined that this was in fact the body of a human and it was a male who died of a gunshot wound to the chest. The body was completely petrified, covered in wax, and then covered with layers and layers of phosphorus paint. It weighed about 50 pounds and it was 63 inches tall. The ears, the big toes, and the fingers were missing. The autopsy revealed that the incisions from the original autopsy performed. So his autopsy confirmed that there was already an autopsy on this guy yeah, because he could see the incisions and he could see the embalming. Yeah. So they ran some tests and they found out that the tissue showed a presence of arsenic, which played a very large part in embalming fluid until the late 1920s. Okay. And these same tests also revealed tuberculosis in his lungs, Uh which is pretty fucked up at a fung house. You have TB hanging, hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. Just in there. Covered in wax. Wow. Tuberculosis. And arsenic. They also found what they called a bullet jacket in his body. And I'm not sure if that's like the bullet itself or like a bullet shell, like just kind of what I'm assuming. A bullet what? A bullet jacket. Would that be like a bulletproof jacket? Like No, no, no. This is in his body. So like they found a bullet jacket. So I'm assuming like a casing or shell. Yeah, a casing. Yeah. This bullet jacket was able to pinpoint the timeline again because it was like called a gas check type of ammunition. So it had like little ringlets around the bottom of the bullet. They called it a gas check. And it was only used in the years of 1905 to 1940. Damn, they must have been ineffective. Yeah. Something must have been wrong with them motherfuckers yeah. for them to kill no bullet jacket. This helped narrow down the timeline of when this man was shot and killed. But that was still such a large timeline. How the hell were they going to figure out whose body this was? Right. So they opened his mouth and in his mouth, they found something and it was a penny from 1924 and a ticket stub to the sideshow in Louis Sonny's Museum of Crime. What the actual fuck? No, so what the fuck? How did this man, shot and killed by police in 1911 in Oklahoma, end up in a fun house in California 65 years later as a wax mannequin? With a penny from 1920 what? 24. 24. So and then 12 years ticket. after, 13 years after he got killed, yeah. there's a penny in there and a ticket to a Museum of Crime show. All right. So let's take it back. How this happened. Let's take it back to where we left off on the Elmer story. And this shit is morbid. We know that the police found him at the barn. There was a shootout and he was pronounced dead on October 8th, 1911. After this, his body was taken to a funeral home in Pawhuska. And while there, it was preserved in the arsenic embalming method technique that was popular. They did this because the time of embalming was known to last longer when they used the arsenic. And this left time for someone to come forward and claim his body because he had no family. They were 
yeah. unsure of any family and they wanted to extend his embalming process as long as to possible. preserve him as much as as long as it could. But because most of his family was dead and also possibly because his criminal behavior, no one really wanted to come forward. Right. He was never claimed, but he was still embalmed nonetheless with this arsenic based preservative. His face was shaved. He was dressed in a suit and he was stored in the back of the funeral home. The undertaker of this funeral home, his name was Joseph L. Johnson. He was known to have very little respect for the dead and he was also known for his odd behaviors. Sounds great for a funeral home director. Right. So as Elmer's body laid there unclaimed, Johnson refused to bury or release the body to anybody until he was paid for his services. Wow. Bro one in his back. Yeah. And after a while, I guess he was pissed enough to decide that if no one was going to pay for him, then the body of this man can pay it up himself. Therefore, he decided to exhibit Elmer's body to make money. He dressed him up in street clothes, placed a rifle in his hands, and stood him up in the corner of the funeral home. Guests were then able to view his body by putting their payment, which was coins, in his mouth. What? Just propped up in the corner of the funeral home. The f- wh- And he marketed as the bandit who wouldn't give up which is where the name comes from. Can you tell me again what year he died? 1911. What the fuck was wrong with people? Other than just like straight up lead poisoning and everything else. But really though, like people were not okay. No, not mentally. No, they were not. They didn't have any care for any other individual. No morals at all. Nope. No morals. He was like, oh, fuck, if he's not going to pay up, then I'm just going to put him in an exhibition. You want to come see this body? Put a coin in his mouth. Like mouth? Dude, that's cr- that's so incredibly. First off, he has t- he had TB. Yeah, exactly. Like they had no. They're so what? That wasn't even that long ago. Like in terms of the timeline of right, we're looking at hundred years. Yeah, no, that's not even a lot. Yeah, that is fucking crazy. It's fucked up. No, that's so, so fucked, up. fucked up. And. Why did people go and look at it? Because the way he marketed. Yeah, I'm sure. He was the train robber. But you know, people did go and look at people's like when they would get killed, they would put people's bodies on display, especially like criminals. Hang them in the middle because they did kill people a lot publicly back then, I guess. But like I personally, like I wouldn't care to go see a killer's body. I think seeing a dead body was a lot more normal back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because everyone. Like I feel like going to see a killer's exhibit his real dead body like you're keeping his name keeping him relevant yeah he's not fucking relevant no at, at all and burn it burn him no okay well burn him yeah <laughs> fair you know but this is also during the same time frame and really extended on far past this probably until around like what world war ii i guess i would say mm-hmm. that people did funerals at their home well yeah because if you buried a body in your backyard and you had a cemetery you didn't have to pay taxes well that and they would have the there was no funeral homes like you didn't go to a place to have a funeral it was either at a church or in your home Mm -hmm. and that was it and that was the only places that you'd have bodies i'll never forget this one story that someone told me i'm not gonna say who an older grandmother she was when she was really young her dad passed away she had no idea that he had passed away. And, you know, they used to keep shit from kids around right. the time. She was a, a first generation. She was born, I guess, I guess technically she was born in a different country. Came over to the U.S., lived in Connecticut. She's probably four, five. No, not dad. Her twin brother. They were four or five. They didn't tell her that her twin brother passed away. He had been really, really sick with, I think, tuberculosis for a really long time. Mm-hmm. He passes away. She hadn't, like, seen him come home, nothing. She comes home from school one day. And his body, like, is in the casket in the living room. What the fuck? And it stayed there for like a, a minute. 
That's morbid. Yeah, that's what they used to do. You used to have people come over to your home, view the body, visitation, have the funeral, but it would be there for a few days before the funeral and a few days after. Mm-hmm. But oh, I'm thankful for funeral homes. I'm for sure. thankful that we no longer do that. Bring dead bodies in homes. Yeah. Get them out very promptly and fast as fuck, boy. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Because we know how we now know how like bad it is to right. be around a decomposing body. Right. And and we're also like, let's lay them to rest as quickly as possible. Right. Get, like, you know, get them to where they're not the being respect, touched and lay, lay them to rest. Yeah. So people were coming. They were viewing his body. They're paying their coins. And he was marketed as the bandit who wouldn't give up. This became a popular attraction at the funeral home and drew the attention of carnival promoters. Johnson, the funeral guy received numerous offers to sell Elmer's corpse, but he always refused because he was making good money himself. On October 6, 1960, a man had called him and he called himself Aver or Aver. He contacts Joseph Johnson, claiming to be Elmer McCurdy's long lost brother from California. Aver had already contacted the Osagi County, Oklahoma sheriff and a local attorney to get permission to take custody of the body and ship it to San Francisco for a proper burial with his family. So the following day, so he doesn't have an option at this point. You're right. claiming the body. You can't keep our body. That's my brother. It's got to come back with me. Right. The following day, Aver arrived at the Johnson funeral home with another man calling himself Wayne, who also claimed to be Elmer's other brother. So Johnson had to release the body to the men who then put it on a train that was intended to travel to San Francisco, but it was instead shipped to Arkansas City, Kansas. As Aver and Wayne were no brothers of Elmer McCurdy's. No, those were aliases. The real names of these men were James and Charles Patterson, the owners of the Great Patterson Carnival Show, Holy. which was a traveling carnival. They should have been businessmen. Yeah. They're fucking good. So his, so James, their brothers, right? James had learned about Elmer's embalmed body exhibit from his brother, Charles, and they then concocted this giant scheme to get possession of the body to feature it in their traveling carnival. I mean, they went through the county sheriff, the local attorney, like they had to go all the nine yards to get this body. These motherfuckers did not come to play. Yeah. No, they didn't. And their lucky DNA wasn't a thing. Yeah. For sure. So his corpse was then featured in Patterson's traveling carnival as, quote, the outlaw who would never be captured alive. Morgan, did they think that this was not, did this ever get back to the dude? I, I don't know. It just goes on from here. It doesn't end. And they like, they didn't even, they changed the it a body. little bit, but they could have changed it. To and some, remember at this point, this is just an embalmed body with arsenic. Yeah, this is not. They haven't wax. done anything to so this the, body. There is decomposing going, going on. on. This is crazy. Yeah. I've never heard of this. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you how I heard it at the end. So he was with the Patterson's traveling carnival until 1922 when Patterson sold his operation of Elmer's body to Louis Sony. Louis Sony then used the corpse in his traveling museum of crime, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws. In 1928, the corpse was part of the official sideshow that accompanied the Trans-American foot race. In 1933, it was then acquired for a time by a director named Dwayne Esper to promote his exploitation film, Narcotic. During this time, the body of Elmer, his corpse, was placed in the lobby of movie theaters as a dead dope fiend, that's a quote, not my words, whom Esper, the director of the movie Narcotics, claimed had killed himself while surrounded by police after he had robbed a drugstore to support his drug habit. They put him as a promotional piece in the front of movie theaters, in the lobby. Where the fuck? Making up an entire new story about this a guy whole new a drug line. addict. And yeah. Like that came from 
nowhere. Like, and wh- and why was that even necessary? Like, he wasn't even in the movie. No it's one- more fucked up. So the time that he gets Elmer's body, it had basically become mummified because it had been, it wasn't getting any, I don't know. It was just an open air, right? Yeah. So it's mummified. The skin was hard. It was shriveled. Caught, the body was shrinking. And he used this as, an, again, a promotional tactic and claimed that the skin's deterioration was proof of his supposed drug abuse. Just to promote the movie Narcotics. What Exclamation the point. fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? After Louis Sony died. So Esper had really was just renting him for the movie. It right. was Louis Sony's piece. Right. I don't know, the corpse. Yeah. He owned the corpse. But Esper, the director, was just u- renting him, basically. So after Louis Sony died in 1949, the corpse of Elmer was placed in storage in a Los Angeles warehouse. And in 64, Sonny's son, Dan, lent the corpse to a filmmaker, David F. Friedman. <laughs> Sound familiar? Yeah. This led to an appearance of the corpse in Friedman's 1967 film, She Freak. Okay. And a year later, Dan Sonny sold the corpse along with other wax figures for $10,000 to a man named Spoonie Singh. Spoonie was the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. Fair. Yeah, that makes... Finally... So fucking popular. Finally, we're putting pieces together. Finally, yeah. And Sony claimed to have bought these wax figures for these two men who wanted to exhibit them at a show in Mount Rushmore. They claim that they, at this point in time, no one knew this was a corpse. Then what do they regularly wax over? I don't know. Maybe they thought it was already a, a mummified wax version of some... At some point, the truth got dropped off and a new lie it formed. And we don't know when that happened, where that happened, how that happened, what they said. It was probably after being in a storage unit. They were like, there's no way this is not a wax figure. Right. Exactly. So these two guys rent it from Booney Singh, the owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum, and they put him on display at the show that they're having in Mount Rushmore. And while these wax figures and the corpse, because he's not a wax figure, were on display in Mount Rushmore, there was a windstorm. I'm sorry, they didn't dip him in wax yet. This resulted in some serious damage to the wax figure, aka the corpse, because it was not a wax figure. And this included the tips of the ears, the fingers, and the big toe being blown off, which is what we discovered in Blown off? From the windstorm. They're outside on the top of Mount Rushmore being displayed. Oh my God. Remember when the first autopsy came, they were like, he has no tips of his ears, his fingers, and his toes are gone. Yeah. This is why. So that's how. Because he was on the top of Mount Rushmore. On the top of Mount Rushmore. What? This is insane. Can't even be real, right? When he was returned back to Spoonie, he kind of decided that his real dead body did not look lifelike enough to exhibit. Probably because it it wasn't alive. Because it's dead. Because he's dead. No shit, Spoonie. Like at this point, really. Yeah, thank God. Anyway, he's like, you know, fuck this. I I don't want this. It's it's damaged. Damaged goods. He then (laughs) sells it to Ed Learsh, who was part owner of an amusement park in Long Beach, California. Okay. And by 1976, Elmer McCurdy's corpse was hanging in the Laugh in the Dark funhouse, supposedly mistaken by the owners as a wax figure because he bought it from the Hollywood Wax Museum. So fair, I guess, on his part. Yeah. I'm not going to give anyone else a break. I'm giving him a break. Yeah. Like you bought it from the Hollywood Wax Museum. I think Hollywood Max Spoonie dude probably put wax over yeah, him. Yeah, he was dipping him. Yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, that's fucked up. And this is when Elmer's body was found by the film crew. But how were they able to track this history of this mummified corpse down? Like how were they able yeah. to figure out all of this information from the ticket to Louis Sony's Museum of Crime in his mouth? I guess they basically called up Louis's son, Dan, yeah. who sold it to the one guy. I don't remember the order now. And he confirmed, yeah, that's Elmer McCurdy. This is his story. This is how, this is where I got it. This is who I gave it to. This is who, where he sent it to. And this is how you got it. Just like that. 
You know, fucking issue. <laughs> so they then use forensic anthropology to match the radiographs of his skull to photos of Elmer taken at the time of his death. And through this process, they were able to confirm that this was the skull of Elmer McCurdy. This story went media crazy and hundreds of funeral homes were calling the Los Angeles coroner's office offering to bury Elmer's body free of charge. But officials waited and waited to see if any living relatives might want to come and claim him. And honestly, I don't blame them because at this point in history, in the last 70 years, yeah. he has been taken advantage of. A million times. Yeah, as a, his entire body, bandit or not, like he... Yeah, no, this is for, just for, un- incredibly unethical. For people's and, own personal fucking game. Yeah, yeah, just morally. And so who's to say that if they were to give it to this funeral home that the cycle wouldn't continue again because he's back in the media. Everyone right. knows his story now, so everyone probably... People do does. want it. Yeah. Fucked up. No family came forward and they were eventually contacted by Fred Olds. And Fred was a representative to the Native Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerns. I tried to look into this, but there was not much information on it. I'm not sure what it is. But if it is what I'm assuming it is, like Native American territory, a representative of something like that. What am I what am I trying to say here? Not karma, but the full circle of like bro trying to steal their money and oh then them God. coming back to claim his body. Yeah, you're right. Full circle. That's full that. circle. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. But anyway, I don't know what that is. I there really wasn't much information on it or much information on Fred Olds. But he was able to convince the chief medical examiner of L.A. to allow him to bury the body back in Oklahoma. And on April 22nd, 1977, Elmer McCurdy was laid to rest at the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. And as an insurance that his body would not be stolen, they poured two feet of concrete on top of his casket. Good. There was 300 people in attendance at his service. I wish they would have buried him in Maine by his mama. Yeah. After 66 years, he was finally laid to rest. Thank God. Brosman on the run. Yeah. And I did want to add this. So this is how I found it. I was scrolling through TikTok and this urban legend came up. Okay. And so you can argue that the Funhouse didn't know because they did buy it from the Hollywood Wax Museum. But for years before the discovery of his body, there was an urban legend that in Laugh in the Dark, fun house one of the mannequins was a dead body like that was like the rumor between the kids that mm. would go to the fun house some of them would say that it would smell in like a certain corner but it was like this big urban legend like if you went to laugh in the dark like one of those bodies one of the mannequins in there is a real dead body so you can claim that he didn't know but i think he did know and it's just one of those urban legends that turned out to be true that's crazy yeah that is the story i have that's crazy. So I found it from TikTok from an urban legend story and I was watching and I'm like, what the fuck? Speaking of urban legends, urban legends, no. Speaking of TikTok and weird things that happen to bodies after death, one came on my page today and I thought this is where you were going to say you were going when you said TikTok. Mm-hmm. This dude's mom passed away. She was like very old and she wanted to donate her body to science. So she donates her body, but specifically she wanted to donate her body to Alzheimer's research because she had Alzheimer's. Her son donates her body brain Mm -hmm. for research with the Alzheimer's, like the main, whatever the main like national research one is. Yeah. And they accept it. They thank him, do all the things. A few months go by, da, 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 da. I don't know how they figured this out exactly. Long story short, they find out that the grandmother's body was sold to the military from Alzheimer's researchers because they had too many already and they kept it in the government for science. Oh, my God. She was used for ballistics testing. 
Oh my god. And that makes me upset because I'm That's, like yeah. she has all she had Alzheimer's and like she went through she lived through all of that and that's what she wanted to do and you didn't even fucking use her brain to read like you didn't even use the that's brain fucked up. That's dude. so fucked up. I don't understand why people like there are still people out there that don't have respect for corpses. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just like something that I'm very aware of because of the University of Tennessee and like Mm-hmm. the forensics department up here Dude, even like in my cadaver lab like it was like pure respect yeah like you didn't fuck around in there no no it was serious it was have respect for this body yeah like, thank this body. like it was yeah. serious really fucking serious i'll never forget when you had your cadaver yeah and it was didn't they like cover their faces yeah. at all times oh, yeah too? we never saw their face exactly like it's very it's very respectful around here. Mm-hmm. And so like when I hear other stories, it blows my mind because all I've ever experienced is this. Mm-hmm. So. And I just feel bad that this guy was like marketed as like this big bad outlaw yeah. and like this horrible person. Like come see him at the crime show. Like he did petty train robberies. No one was and ever he failed hurt. every fucking he failed every time. Like he was already just like yeah. beat ge- being beat down. And by he the really world. did have like a hard life. Hard childhood, hard come up. Like for real. Like no, it's that's fucking abuse sad. of a and of a body. It was it's absolutely just inhumane and no not morals cool. and not cool. No, it's not cool. And it's it's mind blowing, though, that like this many people knew and like continued on. And why is it that when they called Dan Sony, who with the ticket in his mouth? Yeah. Why was it that when they called him in the 70s that they weren't like, dude, you're under arrest? No, really? Like what? Like you was can't it, just is there no body. laws on it. Or I maybe guess not. But we then? have to remember that this was. Wait, but oh, we're talking about we're talking about when they found the body. Right. Technically, they're not going to have enough concrete evidence that he knew that this was. That's just going to be he said, she said type yeah. of shit. So they're not going to try to even fight that legal battle. That's not. It's going to be an uphill thing. They're not doing that. Just fucking And I crazy. bet bro acted so surprised. Yeah. Well, he was. Well, he no, he was the one that was like, oh, that's Elmer McCurdy. Oh, I thought we we're talking about the guy where it was found. No, no, no. This is so they found they figured out this whole entire backstory because they called Dan Sony, who was Lewis and Sony's Museum of Crime son. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was talking about the Long the Beach police. motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I meant like, why weren't they like to Dan? Like, dude, you sold dead bodies to people like you're, yeah, you're, you're going to you're jail. You're arrested. But no, instead, there must not have been laws on it because instead of doing that, he was like, yeah, that's Elmer McCurdy. This is what he did. This is how he died. This I guess it had to be like either that or statute of limitations. Probably. At that point where it's like, man. Fucking crazy. I don't even know. That's yeah. crazy, though. That That's what you Because last night I literally sat down in my bed and I talked. The only thing I talked about yesterday was Western Outlaws. All right, guys. My turn. So the case I have for you today is a, if you're on Patreon, you'll know what I'm talking about. The misappearance type mm. of case. I did Stephen Kubaki forever ago, back in early 2020. Can like, you just refresh me real quick? Stephen Kubaki was the guy that was in the Great Lakes. Like he was within the Bennington Triangle. Mm-hmm. He went skiing one day and they like found his tracks in the snow and then they just disappeared. They yes. thought he fell into the lake. 15 months or something crazy later, he just like showed up on his parents' front doorstep and he was like, I have no idea Yes, what happened. This is similar to that. Oh, shit. Okay. Okay. So this is the case of Danny Philippidis. 
He was a firefighter for the Toronto City Fire Services in Toronto, Ontario, Canada for 28 years. Wow. And like, obviously, he loved Toronto because he and his wife raised their two children there. And in early February of 2018, it was time that Danny and his best friends slash co-workers went on their annual Toronto Fire Services ski trip in New York. And this is, like I said, it's annual. So they do this every year. So this was something that Danny always looked forward to and enjoyed. He was super active, fun-loving, just a larger-than-life guy who loved the outdoors and just adventuring. So he and eight of his buddies set off for Whiteface Mountain Ski Resort in Lake Placid, New York, where they would be spending like, I think a week or a little bit less than a week, probably like a five day trip, you know, and everything was normal in the beginning of the trip. Everyone skied, hung out, laughed and enjoyed their vacation. Why don't we have work trips? I don't know, but we're going to start some ski trips right now. Annual retreats. Yep. No work, just play. No work, just play. Well, we'll vlog it. There's work. Yeah. Yeah. We'll vlog it. We'll get too much good content. No work. A lot of play. We won't. No, it's not even little work because the, our work is going to be playing. You're right. Just on camera. Just on so camera. just having to remember to turn the camera on is going to be the biggest Charge issue it. the entire time. Yeah, that's it. Work comes after. Yeah, we're going to have to hire an assistant to do come and film us. Yeah, let's we do that. We should do that one day. That sounds fun. Yeah, if the boys want to fucking come, they're working. Yeah. It's yeah. our playtime. It's our playtime. They're not actually, we're not even allowing them to yeah, be a part of it. Coming. Just us. So everything was normal. And on February 7th, per usual, everyone woke up early and decided to hit the slopes for a few hours before it got crowded. In the afternoon, these like large groups started showing up. This is pretty normal anytime you go to a ski resort and it started getting crowded. Now for Danny and his crew, they were like, look, we're tired. We've been at this for a few days. Bro's 42 years old. Right. You know, like I know the bricks. I know they're fucking sore. You know, especially being multiple days into this, I'm in so much pain by the end of a ski trip. My calves hurt. I have shin splints. Comes in an hour in. I'm not good. You know, it's just really not good. So they're like, let's go inside and chill out eat, hang out in there for the rest of the night, and we'll do this again in the morning. And plus, they're like nearing the end of the trip. And everyone knows that at the end of a ski trip, you're like, you know what? I think I'm good today. I'm good. It's like I only need a day and a half, and then I'm over it. Yeah. I need zero days because that's not for me. I like snowboarding, doing like two passes, and then going and sitting at the bar and drinking beer. That's what I enjoy to do when I go skiing. Now, their lodge was a ski-in, ski-out. So this was easy Dope. for them to mm-hmm. get in and out of on the slope. So they go back to their ski-in, ski-out, and it's located about halfway up Whiteface Mountain, just off of a pass in a more forested area, which is pretty typical for a ski-in, ski-out. And because of where this is located, you have to park your car at the bottom of the resort, like where the main like lodge is, and then you take the you know thing up and then drop your shit. So the like, thing, the lift? Yeah, the lift. So you're, you're <laughs> literally- Take that thing in my up. All you can bring, this is why women can't go to this location. If I can't bring my car up there, then it's going to be 13 trips to get all my, you know, my totes too. It doesn't even have a zipper on it. Right. There's no way I can ski with that thing. Open face tote. Yeah. You know, I got my open face tote. So that's what they did. Of course, it probably was, I I don't know for sure if it was all men, but I'm going to assume that for them to stay in a place like this, this has got to be all men. All men. You know? So they leave their cars down there, but this 
actually kind of worked out because when you are in a ski in, ski out, like you're not going to take that pass every single time you go. So they would leave their stuff in their car that they needed to take down at the bottom pass, which is what they would go all the way down to and then take the lift back up and make their way down. And so they would use their car as kind of like a locker so they didn't have to rent one. Mm -hmm. Well, a little while after returning back to their lodge, Danny realized that he left his phone in the car. They had already been there for like a bit, probably ate, drank, did whatever. And he's like, I'm going to have to run down there before it gets dark and go get my phone. I'll be right back. So he walks out the door, puts back on his ski stuff, puts on his boots, his helmet, gets his gear, walks over to the pass, goes down it. Well, about an hour passes and Danny had not returned. Initially, his friends, they noticed that he hadn't returned. It had been a minute, but they were like, Give him some time. Yeah, he probably decided to go all the way up to the top and make his way back down. Maybe he's just having a good time. Maybe Mm -hmm. there was no one out. Maybe the snow was great, whatever. Maybe he's just playing around. He'll be back in a second. But then another hour passes and then another hour passes. And they were like, yeah, we have cause to worry. You know, it's getting to go. It's getting kind of dark. Yes, Danny was a free spirited, adventurous guy, but he was very responsible. The dude's literally 42 years old. He's a firefighter. He has been one for 28 years, has a wife, has two kids. He'd done this pass a million times. He'd been there for multiple days. Right. And he wouldn't just leave his friends hanging and not let them know that like not even like get his phone and be like, hey, it's really cool. Y'all should come out or be like, hey, I'm going to actually let me swing by the ski and ski out for two seconds and be like, yo, I'm actually going to do a few more runs if anybody wants to come. Yeah. Danny would have done that. He would not just like not show up for four or so hours. Right. Yeah. So they start looking for him. They still can't find him. And like I said, the sun is going down. So they are losing daylight. daylight. And they're firefighters. These are all firefighters on the trip with him. And they're like, nope, we need to stop our little fucking effort. Let's just go and report him. Because if he's injured somewhere, they need to start searching right fucking. Right. I'm with them. They go to the resort staff. They let them know. Immediately, the ski resort staff then passes this on to search and rescue slash law enforcement. And they swiftly initiated a massive wide scale search for Danny right then and there, as well as an investigation into his disappearance. So not only are they looking for him, but they're investigating where he could have gone. Quick action too there. Right. So they very quickly start going through all of Danny's belongings in the lodge. And his buddies had done this too with, I guess, investigators. And they saw that Danny's passport and his wallet, like his full wallet, was still in his bag. Meaning there was no way that he went to the car, got his phone and learned of an emergency or something. Because that's what they were thinking. Like maybe he got down there, his wife had called him, there was an emergency. He jumped in the car and just started driving and we'll get in to let us know later. But he doesn't have his passport. He doesn't even have an ID. Yeah. And he doesn't have a wallet. International. Exactly. So it's not like he can just go home. They're going to be like, no, you can't come back in. Hello. Yeah. You need your passport. And to verify this further, they went and searched for his car and they found it. But also still inside the car was Danny's phone. phone. So obviously this is an incredibly alarming scene that his main purpose of walking out of the door that day was to go get that phone. And the only reason that they could think that he didn't come back was there had to have been an accident. And now he's hurt somewhere because he never made it to his phone. It's not like. There's a lot of foul play going on on the slopes in daylight. Right, you know. Especially with a grown man who's a firefighter and looks like he's a firefighter. Like, they're like, what the? He's got to be hurt. So they start looking the route that he would have taken to get to the car. And like I said, they come here annually. They had been there for a few days. So 
his friends know which way he's going to take to get down that mountain to get over there or the very few possible ways which ones he would. Right. And they can't find him. They cannot find any sign of Danny. And after hours of searching in the darkness of night around the areas that they truly believed were the only places Danny could be, there was still no sign. And he was exhausted. Exhausted. So he's going to pick the quickest route. Exactly. So this first day of searching did not turn up anything. Granted, they only had just a little bit of time before the sun went down. But there was no sign of Danny. So the next day, his wife flies down to New York to the resort and begins searching herself for Danny alongside the New York State Police, the Department of Homeland Security, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and 140 volunteers from the area. Why did Homeland Security get involved? I don't know. Maybe because he's uh, not a citizen of the United States, I'm guessing. I guess that's like the only thing I can think of. But that stood out to me too. This massive search consisted of land and air methods using canines, drones, helicopters, grid searches, snowmobiles, foot. I mean, everything that you could possibly think of because all that they could think was like, how is it possible that someone who's not an Olympian skier by any means, but like average show, you know, intermediate at the very least, but very experienced skier go on a singular run that he had taken himself a million times. The one time that he takes it by himself and he disappears into thin air. Right. That's weird. Nothing about this made sense. And everyone that knew Danny knew that something was very, very wrong. After a few days that consisted of 7,000 hours of searching combined with all these departments, they could not find. And when I say like any sign of him, I mean like not a ski, not a helmet, not a glove, nothing, not a single thing that would say that Danny was here. It's like he disappeared out of thin air. And more importantly, they were not finding a body. Right. Because initially they're thinking he's he got hurt. injured. And he's stranded somewhere. So they're kind of shifting to a recovery sort of situation. Granted, though, there was a gigantic blizzard wintered storm rolling in and all of the visibility was becoming hour by hour more and more limited. And because of this, they could not get to certain parts of the mountain because of the terrain in that right. location with this visibility and snow dangerous, coming down. Yeah. So they did their best to search the areas they couldn't get to via air with the helicopters and drones and infrared and everything. And they still didn't see anything. When was this? This was in 2018. Okay, I would say drones. Yeah, 2018. With all the elements getting harsher and temperature continually dropping, visibility dropping, the searches were having to pull back drastically. While all feared that Danny was hurt, stranded, and now freezing somewhere on that mountain, this was something they had to do. It was getting more dangerous to search for him. But nothing still was adding up. It was not in Danny's character to go and try something for the first time that's dangerous while alone, knowing that a storm was rolling in because everyone was aware of it and that he had no means of communication with anyone if right. he were to get hurt. And he was tired. He had been in that. Plus, he had been a firefighter for 28 you know, yeah. years. He knew how to appropriately assess the risk in situations. For sure. And no one was entirely sure that this was a risk that he would have been willing to take on any day, mm -hmm. no matter what the situation was. But even more so than that, everyone knew that Danny was a fighter. He was trained in survival and he knew how to, in any bad situation like this, keep himself safe, wait for help and signal for help. Yet there were no signals from him at all. 
nothing that he would have been trained to do. So after six days of these searches for Danny coming up empty handed and completely out of leads with the weather just getting worse and worse, the searches were called off. That following day, Danny's wife received a call from an unknown number while she was packing up her bags. Now, this was nothing new for her at this point. The last six days, she had been receiving numerous calls from investigators, friends, family, I mean, organizations offering to search. This is something that was normal for her, but she always answered. So she promptly answers this phone. But to her shock, on the other end of the line was a voice that she immediately recognized. Oh, my God. It was her husband, Danny. Feeling like she was fucking speaking to a ghost in complete shock. She could barely get words to form to him. She just kept asking, like, what happened? Where are you? Are you OK? What happened? And he was confused, very clearly confused on the phone. He didn't know who she was, how he got on the phone with her. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know who he was. But they chatted for just long enough for his wife to be like, we need to call 911, but not we because I don't know where you're at. And the only way we're going to figure out where you're at is if you call 911. How did he know her number? Just like memory? He had no idea. He just picked up the phone and dialed it. No, not even that. He didn't even remember that. The only thing he could remember was her answering the phone. Like He has no idea of anything. Whoa. Danny hangs up the phone and calls 911. And all I know is through this phone call with 911, for the first time, Danny, his wife, and investigators learn where he was. Danny was 2,899 miles away from Whiteface Mountain. What? Calling from Sacramento, California. What the The other side of the fucking country. Jaw dropper. Police respond to his call and use his like GPS on the phone to find his current location and go to him. And they locate Danny in a rental car facility outside of the Sacramento airport. Danny was still wearing his ski clothes, helmet, boots, gear, gloves, everything. Everything that he was wearing Six days ago, he had not soiled himself. He had a haircut and a brand new, freshly bought iPhone. That's the number he was calling off. What the fuck? When investigators and EMTs began checking him out and like arrived and are asking him questions, Danny had no idea what had happened, who he was, where he had been, how he called his wife, how he knew who his wife was. The only thing he knew was a nickname that he called her. That was the only thing he could remember. Dude. And I know the investigator, they didn't believe him. Yeah, but everything was foggy. Like he was very clearly in shock, disoriented, not okay when they arrived. But they're like, bro, you got a haircut? Like it was just crazy. So while being checked out, Danny told investigators that all he could remember was walking out of the lodge and skiing down to get his phone. Then it was like he blinked. And when he opened his eyes again, he was in this rental car facility with a phone in his hand on the phone with his wife. That's oh my all God. he could remember. As the minutes passed, though, some more and more details. When I say details, I just mean like small glimpses of what he had been doing the last six days were coming back to him, but only in flashes. At one point, he even mentioned or I guess questioned that he could vaguely remember being driven around in a, quote, big rig, which is an 18 wheeler mm-hmm. tractor trailer. Yet he could not remember any details about this truck the driver, interior, exterior, nothing about it. Once fully cleared to fly, like that same day, they put Danny on a plane to Toronto where he was reunited with his family and friends. 
at the hospital and treated further. They did a full-blown workup on him. They brought in psychiatrists to basically evaluate him and see if there's like any underlying mental health crisis that he could have slipped into, signs that he could have possibly been in a psychosis. They brought in therapists to make sure he was telling the truth. Like they gave him polygraphs. They hypnotized him? Yeah, like, I mean, they were bringing in so many people and making sure that he didn't like leave on purpose and like was lying about it. They got Mm -hmm. a toxicology report. And they were testing to see if he had drugs in his system or if he had taken drugs. They couldn't find anything. Holy shit. In all of this, they came up inconclusive. They were like, he's telling the truth. He has no fucking idea what happened. And he's not in a mental health crisis. There's no drugs in his system. Everything's pretty normal. The only thing that they could tell that was off about Danny was that he did have like when they, you know, put him in a CAT scan or MRI or something, that there were signs that he had a very recent severe head trauma, but he didn't remember being hurt or anything. And there was no like outside wound to that? They were like, it. there was like a little mark, but other than that, he looked completely Mm, fine. Sounds like aliens. Right. As days went by, more and more specialists were brought in to try and jog Danny's memory. Slowly, some more details began coming back to him. And this is like the final product of all that Danny can remember that I'm about to walk us through. He remembered telling everyone that he was going to grab his phone, putting on his like ski clothes, putting on his skis and skiing out. Then Danny says, after a little bit, He's going down the mountain. He realizes maybe I've taken the wrong turn because he recognized the area he was in as the Whiteface Mountain Resort area, but he had not been in this area. He knew that he was not in the place that he was supposed to be. So he's like, let me fucking go back up and try again. So after a little while, he tries it again and he's like still not convinced that he knows where he's at. And he's like, fuck it. I know how I got here from the lodge. So let me take off these skis and walk my ass up there. So that's what he does. He takes off his skis and he starts walking his place up there. And at this point, he's kind of getting frustrated more like with himself. Like, how the fuck did I take a wrong turn? He starts getting like angry. So he begins walking back up the mountain to go back to his lodge. And he was still like, like I said, pretty aware of like where he was at on the resort property. But as he's doing this, almost like as if an adrenaline rush was wearing off, he begins to realize that he's disoriented and he's sore, just like all over and his head's kind of hurting. And he remembered thinking that this was probably just from like skiing all day. He was probably dehydrated, tired, exhausted. And again, he's like, I'm 42. I'm always fucking sore, you know? Right. Whatever. He wrote it off like this because he knew he was like, I've not been hurt. I haven't taken a spill. I haven't done anything. Either way, on foot, Danny walks back up to what he thought was the lodge where he and his buddies were staying. But when he gets there, he knocks on the door. No one's there. This lodge is locked up. And it says like Whiteface Mountain on it. So he knows it's a lodge, but it's completely locked up. Bro glitch. So Danny's like looking around this lodge. He knows it's a part of the resort and he starts walking around looking for someone and he finds a parking lot. And this parking lot looked just like the parking lot he parked his car. So he's like, oh, maybe I did get to the fucking parking lot. Maybe I'm down here. Maybe I did go the right way. So he's like, let me walk over to my car. So he walks over to his car. It's not there. So he's like, what the fuck? There's tons of cars here. Not, his car's not there. He's like, what the 
Huh. Did he ever say, and you might talk about this, is he, did he ever say that he saw people? like? No, he never saw people. That's weird. Right. So it was like just desolate. It's just desolate. This place looked like it was completely deserted. So he can't find his car. Now he's like, I don't have a phone. I don't have a car. I have no fucking idea where I'm at. This is weird. Getting creeped out. And he, at this point, is exhausted, overwhelmed, frustrated, semi-panicked, and like not feeling good. He's not feeling good. So he ends up walking still walking down like this path that's paved and he ends up on like a service road or like a main road, but mainly a service road because, you know, there are very few roads that are desolate when you're in a resort and the only ones that are desolate are for workers. Right. He's standing there just kind of looking around, starts walking up and a truck starts coming, an 18-wheeler starts coming, the big rig. He must have flagged down the driver and this is where his memory begins to break up. From what he can remember, the main thing was the feeling and glimpses of himself climbing up into the cab of the truck in the passenger seat and it feeling so warm on his cold, wet ski clothes. Like he just remembered that feeling of like, oh, thank God warm. I'm defrosting. He said that then he remembers waking up a long while later and looking out the window and he could see it was night and they were at some sort of a truck stop. But then his eyes like started closing back again, falls back asleep. Next thing again, he wakes up. He does not recognize where he's at at all. And so I guess he asked or just said out loud, like, where am I? To which a man who he assumes is the driver of this 18 wheeler responded that they were driving through Utah. Have you ever been here? Jay was like, no, never been over on this side of the United States. I'm from Toronto. And then he falls back asleep. Now, this happened several times. Danny recalled waking up and falling back asleep with these little glimpses and somewhat conversations I mean, while in the cab of the truck. That's a lot of sleep for those long days. Right. Driving across the country is not Se a day I mean, trip. six days later, dude. Yeah. But all that he could really remember about these instances, like, fully was just how bad of a headache he had every single time he opened his eyes. All the while, he was incredibly disoriented. He had no idea where he was. He kept thinking like, how far am I away from wh Whiteface? Why are we not there yet? Did I ski that far away? Like, that's what he kept thinking. Like, I'm going back to my friends. Why is it taking so long? Yeah. Just like that disoriented. And again, he had never been West in the United States before. So he's like, where the fuck is Utah? Yeah. yeah. I mean, imagine. Why does it look like Mars? No, literally. Imagine someone being like, driving you somewhere you open your eyes you look like you're on a different planet something you you're in a different country you're in a it looks like a different fucking planet literally no it does and you're like where the fuck am i yeah and you keep falling back to sleep that's all you know is you're just exhausted your head hurts and you're falling back to sleep and you're just waking up in different states that's so freaky dude. it's crazy the last thing that he remembered in this cab was that the driver woke him up and told him that they were at the end of the line or the final destination of this route. So Sacramento, he's like, get out the car. I'm done with my delivery. So Danny gets out the truck. He was dropped off somewhere in like a downtown or like a city area. And he just began wandering around trying to figure out where in the fuck clothes. Sacramento was in ski clothes with skis and a helmet and ski boots and all the things, all the drama. He's like, where the fuck is Sacramento? Where am I? What is going on? Who am I? He has no idea who he is. All he knew was that he needed to call his wife. And for clarity, he said that he didn't really know why or who it was that he needed to call. He just knew he needed to contact someone. And he just kept hearing this nickname that he knew for his wife going through his head. Like, I need to call this nickname. 
They've never said what the nickname is. I, I think they're like pretty private for the most part. He's done like multiple interviews, though. He keeps hearing this nickname. He's like, I got to call whoever the fuck that is. I have no idea who it is, but I got to call them. He begins like looking through his pockets and in his, the pocket of his ski suit, he found one of the credit cards that he had put in there so he could get stuff like one at the lodge down at the bottom and like a few dollar bills. And he was like, fucking score, but no ID, no passport, nothing. After finding this, Danny said that he went into various different phone stores like Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, all the things. Yeah. And he could not find a phone to buy anywhere because no one was going to sell a phone to a dude in ski clothes, having no idea what's no going license. on, not even his name, no ID, nothing. They're not. They're like, bro, you're you need to go get help. So he goes to all these places. They're not going to sell him a phone because he doesn't have an ID and he's acting really fucking weird. Finally, he finds, I guess, a sketchy shop that was willing to sell him an like, sure, iPhone for a bag without an iPhone or I mean, without an ID. So he finally gets an iPhone and. Dude, imagine being lost, not knowing who the fuck you are, where the fuck you are, what the fuck is going on, who this woman's name that's playing over in your head. something in a nightmare. You're in Sacramento, California, and you're having to go and be hassled by the Verizon no. AT&T T-Mobile motherfuckers. No. You know, I I hate. Did you want Did you want this case? Yeah, no. They're, they're trying to sell you everything. Protector? That's like walking. Do you, you want to buy the charger with it? Guys, now the phones don't come with chargers. If you ever... <laughs> Went to a car charger. If you were ever a tanning girl and went to Suntan City, you know what I'm talking about. Imagine having amnesia and walking into a fucking Suntan City and getting hassled by those girls. Those what did you do this weekend? Any they plans? fucking wrecked me every time. I would I would buy something just to get the fuck out of that conversation yeah. every time. I'd be like, "Where's a sample packet? Give me a, a sample packet for two. These two right here, they're on so great. One hundred. Put it in the bag. I don't give a shit. I'll spend four hundred dollars to get the fuck out of here. I don't care. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They're relentless. Yeah, they're relentless. Relentless. <laughs> Imagine walking into a, a Verizon. Last time I went to Verizon, I got a phone case, home. a screen protector, a charger, a car charger. I had to put the screen protector on yeah. for me. I updated all my storage. I paid mm -hmm. an extra million dollars. I paid for 5G. I got cellular data on shit that doesn't need cellular data. <laughs> Next thing you care. know, your watch, your AirPods, <laughs> your iPad, it's all got cellular. You're walking out of Crazy. there and you're like, wow, I just am poor all of a sudden. <laughs> Immediately, I'm poor. So imagine having amnesia yeah, and having to deal with that shit. <laughs> but either way, he had no idea what his wife's number was. When he got the phone, he's like thinking that whoever this magic woman in my head is, I'm going to know her number, obviously. So he gets out there. He finally gets his phone. He's been through hell. It's getting dark. He's in Sacramento, California. He's got a new phone bill he's got to pay for. Yeah, now he's carrying around skis around downtown. And a Verizon bag. In a whole, like, thing. And a Verizon bag. And bro's like, oh, thank God. That's over. Let me pull up the phone. Okay. Yeah, I don't know the number. He has no idea. But at some point in this, he finally, I guess, remembered Remembers. his name for a little bit. Because he was like, I need to figure this out. We're not really sure when or where, but at some point that night, Danny goes onto the internet and searches either his name or his wife's name that was playing in his head. And in Googling her slash him, he learns that he's a missing person. And he's like, wow, that escalated. But that got dark quick. I guess he like fell asleep. And they don't know where he slept or where this was again, right? The, he has no idea where he's at. All he can remember next is he learned that he was a missing person. Still doesn't know who to call or what to do. So he wakes up the next morning. He flags down a car and he asks them to take him to the airport or said like, I, I'm from Toronto or something like that. Like just being like, I'm not from here. Can you help me? And I guess these people just like took him to the airport. Yeah. They're like, okay. So they dropped him off at the Sacramento airport and 
he starts wandering around there being like, wait, I can't buy a phone. I probably can't get on a plane. And then he's like, wait, who am I again? Like he couldn't remember. So he's sitting there trying to go through all this. And then he's like trying to figure out like how to get what an airport was. Because he, again, he's like losing his memory faster than he can gain it back. Mm-hmm. He finds himself in this rental car facility. And as he's walking around there, something that he saw jogged his memory. And it's like his wife's number just came to him. And he wow. typed it in his phone and he called it having no idea who the fuck he was calling. He just knew that this number was the number that he needed to call. And so he calls his wife and that's where we know what happened, right? To this day, we have no idea who the trucker was he rode with from New York no way. to California. Nobody knows who it is. He's never like remembered who this person no is. No one's came forward. No like, one's I had ever come guy, forward. This is what happened. And this this was a big case. I actually remember this in 2018. I don't remember this. I remember it very vaguely. Very like big. Maybe like a Facebook post. Yeah, or something. that's what I remember it from. I think I actually watched Good Morning America about it, probably. But this was a big thing. Everyone, especially people in Sacramento or New York, or people had no way the algorithm's going to bring it to you in 2018. Right. We had algorithms by then. Right. We, we so did. it was just, it's just odd that we never figured out who this person is. They'd never come forward. Also, it was later determined that Danny did take a wrong turn. And was actually still at Whiteface when he got lost and went to that deserted lodge. But it was the children's lodge for where they like taught ski school. And he was on the children's slopes. He was like in the baby slopes, the bunny hills, down the by fuck? this like parking lot where the staff would park to work for the kid. And the, that, the reason why it was deserted looking and locked up was because that it had already closed that day. Oh, my God. It had been closed by the time he got there. So he really was there. As for the location that he slept in Sacramento, investigators do not know for sure where it was, but they believe based off, I guess, the person that picked him up and gave him a ride to the airport. They believe that he slept near Richard Boulevard on like an on or off ramp to the interstate on like under a overpass and this was 13 miles away from the airport Holy so, shit. yeah they're like dude did you just fall and he's it's like i just fell asleep I'm i mean this so is confused. dangerous right yeah. so following the investigations with law enforcement medical professionals everyone it was determined that at some point just after leaving the lodge danny must have fallen slipped gotten hurt in some way or just in an accident during which he hit his head and suffered from a severe concussion possibly was like going into a coma yeah a bad concussion which which caused amnesia. Obviously, we know that amnesia is something that is essentially up in the air when it comes down to like when your memory no is going answers, to come back. Yeah. If it's going to come back, it's a it's a medical mystery. They don't know if he'll ever get his memory back. He has restored most of his like long term memory. He can so remember. he knows his kids. Yeah. His wife. He could remember like up to the point. There's things that he can't remember fully, but like he remembers his wife, his kids, his job, going on the trip. Like he remembers that stuff, but there's just some holes. But specifically, there's a gigantic hole as to what the fuck happened Happened that day during that time. So they think that that was obviously like a part of the concussion. He wouldn't remember because he would be sleeping. Right. But they were like, I mean, for you to have had that severe of a head injury, like this trucker took great care of you. Got your hair cut. Got you a new... Yeah, the yeah. haircut's weird. Yeah, gave him a haircut, all this stuff. And like, 
Did he have blood in his head, maybe? No, he was completely clean. He, they were like, it looked like you had showered. He had not soiled himself, so he had access to a restroom whenever he needed it. He was in great health. He Why wouldn't the trucker come forward? That's what I'm saying. He still has so many holes and like what happened and doesn't remember the full extent of everything. He has restored the majority of his long-term memory and life, but Danny has been incredibly vocal about thanking everyone that searched for him and helped him through this. There was an interview and he was like, it was almost hard for me to comprehend how many people came and searched for me. And it has touched me on like such a level that I can't even. Yeah, that's I mean, imagine hearing that, you know, thinking about all your friends and family that showed up. Wow. Yeah, Um, he was a good guy. But the one thing that he would love most to find and person to thank would be that trucker that took care of him. No no one. one ever knows. Holy shit. So we got some theories. Yeah, please. They're not like really written out. Like I don't have anything. So we're just gonna have to discuss them. That's this is fine. Not something that number one, alien abduction. Yeah. I think when he was skiing down, mm-hmm. abducted, fucked his memory up, dropped him off on the wrong side of the park. That's where that missed section of mm-hmm. where the time was. And that ruined his memory. That's, or yeah. he was gone the entire time and they placed those memories in his head, which is why the truck driver never came forward because he didn't exist. His memories weren't real until he was really in Sacramento where the couple yeah. picked him up. Picked him up. But here, here's the thing, though, too. Where he was makes sense. And he has, like, a good amount of memory of just, like, skiing around for a long period of time, but, like, not knowing what the time was. So my thing is I wonder if when he got to that lodge and was on that desolate service road after hours when everything is shut down, that memory of the truck was placed in his head and it was actually like a spaceship. Mm-hmm. And they just had a TV and they're like, you're out of loves. Welcome to America. Welcome to Utah. We're out of Bucky. We're in Bucky's. Yeah. That's why I could see that whole entire piece of traveling from New York to California being him actually being abducted and right. those memories being placed until he was in California because a couple came forward. Right. They and spoke it would, on him. And it would make sense as to the fact that he was in great health. He had not soiled himself. His clothes were the same ones that he got abducted in. He had a haircut. Yep. You know, like... What trucker wouldn't come forward, especially when he's like, I don't think anyone abducted me. Like, I... So this is what leads us to theory number two. Okay. That he was actually abducted by By the truck truck. driver. But there's one off of this, which we can discuss these two together, is that he was actually hit with the truck. Oh. Yeah. Like the truck driver didn't see him on the road and accidentally hit him thinking that he was dead, put him in the back of the cab. He was just unconscious from a severe head injury and just like cleaned him up, took good care of him and took him out of Sacramento and dropped him off. And that's why the trucker never came forward. Or he was abducted by the trucker for some weird reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know what. There yeah, were no just, signs of like abuse of any kind. Why would a grown truck driving man be like, I'm going to abduct a 42 year old, very clearly fit firefighter from Toronto, Canada. Right. Today. And I'm going to take care of him. Like how do and you then know- drop him off in California? So then that does make sense as to why he would have accidentally hit the dude and been like, hey, man, I found you on the side of the road. You said you were going to Sacramento. Let me drop you off here and see you never. That theory is a little more plausible. Yeah. And that would I make mean, sense. I mean, maybe as- you did abduct him. He had bad intentions and then he came to his senses. Like the truck driver himself was in like this like right. state of like, I'm evil. And then like immediately was like, what the fuck am like, I doing? Like, I mean, what the fuck I, have am I, this, I just kidnapped the guy. Yeah. Like, I've got to fix this. And, it, and looking at that dude, if he comes to like, mm, he's going to beat my fucking yeah. ass. But he wasn't drugged. Yeah. 
He wasn't drugged at all. So like what happened? Was he just being continually hit over the head by this truck driver? Oh, that would cause for a severe head trauma that didn't have a lot of like blood, blood, you know, drama on the outside going on. I don't know. And like what can heal in six days if you got hit by a fucking truck? No, No, the only thing that can heal that would be extraterrestrial. Yeah. Like medicine. Yeah. Something crazy would have to be healed. But why would he why would they give him a head trauma? That's something you've never heard in ET abductions is that they leave with a head trauma. But the head trauma was only seen. It was like a, it was an old severe head trauma that was in the and he said like whoever took care of you you've healed very well like what you were doing was perfect keeping your eyes shut not having any screen time doing your thing so maybe the alien probe or whatever was put in through there and it looks like a head trauma mm-hmm. to us right when in reality it was something that they were doing and that was the amnesia so has he ever spoke on his theory he just what he's happened? just like i'm i'm fucking no like i'm grateful to be alive but like what the fuck like that's all i've ever like he's never been like i think i was abducted by aliens no i think he's just like th- that was so crazy i don't even want to think about it is essentially like what i got from all the interviews i saw of him it's crazy is there another theory yeah it's, well the last the final one is just that he did this on purpose like he actually walked out of his life and that was his intention mm. and then kind of regretted it and came back. I, I don't think so. I'm not feeling it. Let me tell you something. I could see why people might think that, but like... Well, if that was the case, guys, trust me, I he's not going to have his my fucking clothes. skis. Yeah, he's not going to have his ski clothes on. That's not going to happen. And he's yeah. not going to go get a fucking haircut. Yeah. He's in a different country. He's fine. You know, like no one's going to be like, he's in California and Sacramento. Living it up, life. Yeah, like it's not gonna happen. I don't think that would have been the case. And like watching interviews with him, like he's a he's genuinely like shook from this and like very thankful to be with his family. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have no idea, but now I have to get on Reddit. Is it on Reddit? Yeah, of course. I have to But get not on good, though. Like, not, like, as deep as I wanted it to be. Like, yeah. not as wacky as I wanted it to go. TikTok, There's, maybe. like, two YouTube videos. I found a few TikToks. There is, like, a mini documentary. I thing. think, look, I know you're drained. I know. I know you're down bad this week. Wow. I need you to record one of your Taylor Jane 98 TikToks. Oh, yeah. Of this case. Yeah. So I can see the comments. No, really. Like, what do you think happened? No. These are the theories. And then I, I we'll actually said in. when I was typing this out, I was like, I'm definitely putting this on TikTok. This is a yeah, great case for TikTok. Because I need to read the comments. If, yeah. there, if there's no good deep dive, and you should mention that, be like, there's no good deep dive anywhere. Like, I need to know what people think. I need, yeah. I need fucking I need here. Reddit to be in my comments right now. Yeah. I'm going to have to post about two more so that one will actually go out because, you know, I haven't posted in what? A year? No. Was like, <laughs> no, really, though. When have you posted? I think. Before I left for Italy. Oh, my God. Guys, we're going to be in Nashville this weekend that you're listening to this. Yeah. We're going to Halloween the weekend. Two we'll Girls, One Ghost show. At the Two Girls, One Ghost show. So if you see us, you better say fucking hi. No, you better just very quietly say hi because I'm going to pee my pants. Yeah, be, be, be so chill. Be, be cool. Cool as a cucumber. Cool as a cucumber and as cool and chill as Taylor was when we went to And that's why we drink. Yep. So lose your shit. <laughs> Absolutely lose your fucking shit. No, but really, we're really excited to go see. No, I'm really excited. Friend. We've met Sabrina in person. Yeah. We, we know them well. We chat all the time. We recorded so yeah. many episodes, but we have never met Corinne. Corinne in person. And I'm excited to meet Sabrina, like, in a place that's not where we were. In, and I'm not. You mean when you don't remember? When I don't remember, you know? Well, you could take out yeah. memories. I remember. <laughs> this time, let's leave with memories. <laughs> I remember her walking in. I remember talking for a bit. And that was I Lisa do- Vanderpump's fault. Yeah, that was. That drink. We only had it was, what? It was her special. It was the Lisa special. Wait, we, we had. had two cocktails and two shots. Yeah. Now, granted, the shots were straight up fucking drinks. 
Yeah, those were crazy. They were huge, but we were like, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I was not fine. Update, I was not fine. It's only been a year. It's finally like almost been a year. And so I'm about to be willing to talk about it. I'm getting closer to wanting to talk it's about it. It's not there yet. It was just a hard time. And this is our goal in Nashville that we're going to leave with memories. We're going to leave with memories. Our and memory, our let me tell you something. I'm and, not. And our, what's it called? Not embarrassment. Our dignity. dignity. Our dignity. Still intact. Yeah. Hopefully. All right, guys. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.